Hello and welcome to YHTV's Trinity of Life. This is episode 42. I'm Christina Souza Mai, your host of this program. Thank you so much for joining me again as I continue to explore the wonderful world of healing arts, meditation, therapies, and the many modalities of helping us find balance in our individual journeys. We are always excited to meet those who are on the leading edge of creating change on this planet. At any time during this live presentation, you can ask a question or make a comment just simply by scrolling down on the screen and you will see there a little comment box. If you type it in and submit, um, it will actually show up on my screen and I will share that with our special guest. Or if you prefer to dial in to our conference line, which is 323-476-3672, again, 323-476-3672, with the ID of 607-393-POUND. Again, 607-393-POUND. That way you'll show up on another screen and we can unmute you and have you ask your question directly to our special guest. Our guest today is an individual who has been a part of the Yoga Hub family since 2010's Virtual World Yoga and Meditation Conference, the first conference that Yoga Hub had held. She strives to support others to create balance in their lives through brain chemistry and the effects it has on addiction. Hence the title, Food Addiction and Innovative Interventions. I am so happy and honored to have with us today, Nancy Anderson Dolan. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Christina. Thank you so much for joining us here at Yoga Hub. It's great to see you and not just hear you. <laughs> it's great to be back involved actively. Wonderful. Um, Nancy, could you tell us, uh, you're in Canada right now, which part of Canada? In Calgary, Alberta. And that's where you live and work, is that correct? Yes, it is. Wonderful. Um, so share a little bit about your history with us so that our audience knows well, you know, your background and, and where you come from, Canadian through and through, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and this, um, it has as much to do with my story, um, my upbringing, because that's where it all started for me about the uh, issues of addiction. When I was really young, like literally two years old, I was already taking food and hiding in my closet and eating it like an entire pound of butter. This wasn't wow. just, you know, stealing a cookie. This was really strange behavior that young. And so I grew up in a, you know, pretty average kind of family, or it looked like that from the outside anyway, and went along. And every single part of my life, though, food got a little stranger and a little um, excessive, but I always dressed it up really well in good context. So it didn't always look that strange. So I would make, we'd play with food and we'd make these elaborate meals. When, and I would when make... When you say that, does that mean you and your parents or, or you and your siblings? Mm -hmm. Well, my siblings and my friends. And so I would always take that into it. 
that would always be part of it. Um, going down to the store to buy candy and I would buy some, but I would buy more. Literally, I would hide it. I would hoard it in places. It, it always played this underground role that I didn't really see as any different until a little further on. And actually there was, there's a myth in the family. And this is often what happens when people have had this experience about things that I would say and do around food. And so I would see like a quarter of a cake and say, well, there's not much left. Could I have that? And I would. And so there were these odd things that, you know, started percolating up really, really young. Mm. Mm. And And so as I, sorry. Your parents, I mean, I I know as a mom, I mean, if a stick of if not, if a stick of butter disappeared, I would really question it. And a stick is a quarter pound. I yeah. mean, if if you're two and hiding and noshing yeah. on this pound of butter, yeah, your your mom or your your parents didn't notice. Well, and this is this is what's typical in families that have this issue. There's something going on in everybody's brain. And so my mom was frequently unable to care well for us. And literally my memory is of her sitting in front of our living room windows, just catastonic, not being able to move, not being able to talk. And so we just sort of did whatever we needed to do. And those kinds of things, that inattention and inability to, you know, have a, have a actual normal life, but as a child, you don't know any different. You think that is normal and you do what you need to as, as to go on with. And so that would start to unfold like that. And my family all were doing the same thing, you know, so it didn't seem so out of, out of context. And my mom would actually give us white flour bread sandwiches with brown sugar and mayonnaise at night. And <laughs> that's pretty much a, um, recipe for addiction, uh, for food addiction, but it made us go to sleep. And so she got this space and time for herself. And so it worked for her and that got perpetuated. So, so in actual, do your, your siblings also had this issue of food addiction as well? Because you all had the same kind of diet. You were all given the same concoction before bed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so it, literally all of us, you know, are, we're well over a hundred pounds overweight. Yeah. And at yeah. what age is this? Well, by the time that, oh, I think probably I was probably close to a hundred pounds overweight by the time I hit about grade seven, grade eight. Wow. And of course, and all of the problems that that entails being that heavy at that age. Yes. Um, by the time that I was 29, I hit 300 pounds. And that's where things started to really, like I, I hit bottom, which was great. Um, as I like to say, as I grew up, as I was tall enough to reach other things, I would use other things. So, you know, I would smoke, I would drink, I would try pretty much anything anybody handed me. Um, so the older I got, the more addicted I got. But food was always the mother of them all. You know, I would literally come back and use food. If I would stop something else, like when I would try to quit smoking, I would come back and eat. And so in right up till 29 and I was at 29, I was gaining like a pound a day and eating constantly. I couldn't leave the house without food in my pockets. I obsessed about food 
at every moment that I wasn't actually eating it. So it really had taken over. I was um, struggling to just move through life. I, my life was obviously very chaotic and my relationships were very chaotic. Things were, you know, not going particularly well for me. Now, at that point, I, I ran into some people that understood food as an addiction. And that literally started to, it turned the corner for me. And I started to see it differently. And I started to address the problem differently, where before I would just go to the next diet program and I would do all the typical things that addicts do about swearing off it and then going back on it. And unfortunately, in this case, when people actually do diet and deprive themselves of food and cut down, it sets up a horrendous cycle of like shooting out like a catapult because you're not dealing with the underlying brain chemistry problems. And so people will diet and then it gets worse and worse and they shoot out, they gain the weight back and more and their bodies are into something called weight cycling. So other addictions don't necessarily have that experience, but this this is a complication with this particular one. And, yeah. and uh, I mean, that, that's amazing. I, I To imagine you at 300 pounds, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's so hard to imagine. I mean, looking at you now and and um, yeah. You know, even to imagine, uh, what, uh, uh, let's say grade seven, that's 12, 13 years old at a hundred pounds. I yeah. mean, what it must have done to your joints and your growth and your growing up. And even as a parent myself, that it's um, a struggle to keep, you know, my own balance in place. And then you, you're just getting by. You literally are just getting by. And in that day and age, they weren't talking about anything like this. You know, Mm -hmm. so if a kid was taking food, it was a behavior problem in that they were, you know, uh, lying or stealing or things like that. It wasn't considered any kind of eating issue or any kind of addiction issue for sure. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And of course, you know, there are other cultures like, you know, in... uh, Asian cultures, if your child is eating and they're just eating and continuously eating, it's a good sign. You know, it's like they're healthy. They're, they're a grown yeah. child. They just means that they need more food. But then again, is the type of food that the child is intaking, you know? Um, well, yeah. Unfortunately, right now, too, there is these foods that are called hyperpalatable foods. Mm-hmm. And those foods are um, designed to evoke the addiction response in people's bodies. And so when that happens, and, you know, it can be happening to the whole family. And we see that often, that it's in the whole family. Mm. And so when it's happening to the whole family, everybody is addicted and nobody is able to pull out of it um, for any length of time. And so the cycle becomes a family cycle, even where the family will try and get well, but then they're not dealing with the underlying uh, chemistry issues and that irresistible urge to eat comes back. And then the whole family gets thrown back into chaos again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so in actuality, I mean, you, you realized that you had an issue, an imbalance growing up, because hence the dieting that you would try. Continuously, well, I didn't, right? I didn't understand the imbalance at that time. I understood the addiction that I was actually addicted to um, food, to mm. overeating particular foods. Mm-hmm. So, so when you were twenty nine and you ran, um, came across these individuals who understood the basis mm-hmm. to food addiction, that's so you were aware that something was 
off. I mean, you had an addiction. Yes. You were aware of that <laughs> yeah. from a very early age. You just didn't, yeah. everything you tried just didn't work That by the sounds of it, like yeah. all the dieting and everything didn't work, except the yeah. dieting and everything actually ended up heightening it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought oh I had gosh. a willpower problem. I, you know, and then at 29, I understood I had an addiction problem and you deal with those problems very differently. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's willpower, you, you pull up your socks and you try again. And that actually is what makes you sicker in this problem. But if it's an addiction, then you go about it a little differently. So, so can you explain to us the differences? Like, like, for example, mm-hmm. I, I remember, you know, in, in my generation growing up and, uh, there was usually one or two children that were overweight in school and, yeah. And their parents were very much overweight as well. Yes. And yeah. it was like, okay, well, you know, the, the, it's, it's, this is the, this is the family, this is the lineage. Yeah. And, um, and I do recall it was the type of food they were consuming as opposed to everyone else and the amount yeah. and the amount, yes. um, yeah. like we would have hot dogs, 70% of the kids wanted a plain hot dog with maybe a little ketchup. Well, these other yeah. individuals had everything from bags of relish and, the ketchup yeah. and, and it's doused in, <laughs> and yes. we're like, can you taste yeah. the hot dog? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. so, so from a very young age and it's like, of course it's like, will uh, you hear, of course it's willpower, it's willpower yes. and it's just, uh, not being strong enough to withhold from the sweetness or the, you know, the yeah. candies and everything. But, um, yeah. but so, so you're saying the difference between willpower and overeating in that way as compared to the food addiction, which has to do with the brain chemistry. Yes, absolutely. And so when somebody has a brain chemistry problem, it isn't, they, they're experiencing a symptom of a brain chemistry problem that includes this irresistible urge to eat. And when that happens, that physiological demand overrules any psychological plan you might come up with. And so people have good intentions, but then they, they go off and they say, you know, I don't know what happened. I don't know why I did that. And they, it is, it it literally is the brain problem driving them to go and do that. And it, it becomes irresistible. And so that it's, it just won't work to say, go, you know, go and follow this diet. It's not possible. So the brain chemistry, when it, when the actual eating is happening, that's a symptom. One of the, the just hallmark symptoms mm-hmm. of a serotonin deficit is an extreme craving for unrefined, refined food. So sugar, uh, refined flour, all of those kinds of things. And that's an extreme feeling in the body. And people that haven't experienced it can't even imagine. It's like, there is a, a message coming from your primal brain at the very back that says, if you don't eat this, you'll die. And really, when you put that, that highly refined product in your body, you get relief from that serotonin deficit. Now, the problem is it, it has so many bad effects to it. It's like taking a medication that has, you know, fatal side effects. But that's why the craving keeps coming back. It is a survival feeling in your brain. Mm. And so a whole family involved in it and their bodies are not doing well because they're in that cycle of using this thing to medicate Mm. that fixes the problem temporarily, but just does such damage in so many other ways. Mm. So 
So this food addiction and the uh, the brain chemistry, I mean, is one born with it or is it developed? Well, it's it's more complex than that, but I'll I'll tell you as simply as I can. There's about there's three basic ways that it can happen, and the first one is a, like a genetic first generation oddity that can happen. It's rarer, but it can happen, or an injury. The injury again is a you know a rare thing, but that can happen. A brain injury and things are off kilter, and the, there's a chemical deficit that is hard to balance without other intervention. Um, it might be a, um, illness or an exposure, like to an exposure to lead or mercury or mm. meningitis. Um, those kinds of injury kinds of things. Mm. Often, when there's a food intolerance, you can actually get brain inflammation from you know just the inflammation in a body that is not processing food properly. And so anything that attacks the brain like that can cause that sort of a problem. Then the other part is what we call an inherited or generational. So there's an inherited vulnerability. That doesn't mean that everybody in a family of alcoholics will be alcoholic. And in fact, they might do other things. They might, somebody might eat, somebody might be a teetotaler, never go near alcohol. Somebody might have a gambling problem. So the actual way that it turns out is that interplay with the environment when some, when somebody is out here. And so I certainly had it born in. I have a long history of mental health issues, addiction issues in my extended family. And I was brought up in an environment that was doomed to bring it out in me. Mm. You know, growing up in the, you know, early sixties, there, they, they had sugar in the baby food and they fed you fruit loops and, you know, those kinds of things. They still and do. those are the very, <laughs> yes. Well, they're Sadly the very substances. Say. Yeah. And, and those are the very substances that can, that can hurt that vulnerable brain and draw it into the addictive cycling. And so there's a vulnerability already. And then if there's an environment that encourages it, it, it just starts developing. And then what we call the last part is what we call adult acquired. And adult acquired is sort of things we've done to ourselves. And it might be through, in our society today, the most typical brain chemistry problems are too much dopamine and too little serotonin. And so that too little serotonin comes from not enough sleep, um, too much un, too much heavily refined food. Your body doesn't have enough time to take the nutrients to build good brain chemistry. Um, odd diets that don't have enough protein or carbohydrates in them. Those, All those kinds of things, too much work. All of that kind of stuff uh, depletes serotonin. And then too much dopamine is way too much stimulation. You know, not sleeping, uh, just having like screens all the time, all those images, always the next, newest, highest, fastest, harder thing. That stimulates <laughs> mm, more dopamine. That sounds a little familiar around here. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and if people have a good, stable brain, they can handle it. But for those of us that were born with those vulnerabilities, this is, is such a disaster. And so that goes mm. on like that. And then we get into cycles using the wrong kinds of things to help and to just try and feel better. Mm -hmm. And then it, it creates all sorts of problems like physical problems, mental health problems, depression, OCD, all of those things. It just cascades. Mm -hmm. So that's how it starts. And then it rolls out that way. Yeah. Um, how interesting. So coming back to like serotonin and dopamine, 
Um, so if an individual is continuously stressed, um, mm-hmm. not lack of sleep, as you were saying, you know, just, uh, too much stimulation, mm-hmm. um, that, that usually causes a decrease in serotonin. Yes. Yeah. So, You're... so our physical bodies basically affect yeah. what's going on in our brain, which is physical, but, but the chemistry in our brain and mm-hmm. what is, because of the low serotonin, then what is the, what is, what does the body begin to crave? The sugars and the refined foods at that time? Absolutely. And then it becomes, then those are the very foods that um, deplete your ability to build serotonin. So it becomes a cycling down. Oh, so the body craves it, but, yeah. it, but the chemical reaction of those refined sugars, et cetera, yeah. causes the body to not be able to rebuild the serotonin. Is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly what you're hearing. Wow. Hence yeah. why the, well, and so in that case, when, when an individual with the lack of serotonin goes on a diet and a lot of the sugars are removed from the diet and healthy foods are brought in, wouldn't that increase the serotonin back up? Uh, not fast enough. And so what happens is that they're, they, they start feeling better for a moment because eating all that refined food is hard on your body, makes you feel bad. So you feel, ba- feel better for a little bit and then maybe you lose a little weight and people are being nice to you and you're like feeling successful. So you feel good, but there is starting to be a creeping depression the problem of that physical distress it feels so uncomfortable in your body because serotonin is the chemical that makes us feel at ease in the world and in our bodies Mm. and so when you don't have enough you start to feel bad and food is the very first thing we all learn to have to feel better Mm. and so that is the thing we start thinking about and what people say is like you know I just sort of had that one bite and then everything, I never could get back on the diet. Or I, you know, I just sort of drifted off this way, started eating more food and unhealthy foods and those things because the demand in the brain was to feel better. Mm. And so it doesn't usually get in there quick enough for people that don't have, you know, much of an imbalance that, you know, that can be helpful and they can steer back on the right course. But somebody with an inborn imbalance that has developed over a few years and um, typically it's over a lot of years by the time you notice it that strongly, that's not going to get better just by taking the the food that isn't good for you out. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, so that is serotonin. Now, what about the dopamine? Well, dopamine we know is uh, heavily involved in the addictive problem. Mm. And typically, it's people are thinking that there's too little dopamine. And so when you do something exciting like use or, you know, gamble, things like that, you get this dopamine rush. Mm. And unfortunately, your brain goes, wow, I feel better sometimes for the first time ever. I feel better. I feel like a real person and I'm okay. So my brain writes down the address of whatever it was I was doing and I'm going to remember to go back and do that every time I feel bad. And anything else that makes me feel a little bit better but not like that diminishes in my interest. And so we become more and more addicted to that thing that made us feel that good. And again, a vulnerable brain 
it feels those things that are that good so much stronger than somebody who just has a regular brain. That's why that's why not everybody gets addicted to alcohol, and why not everybody when they eat um, potato chips, you know, can't stop. It's only the people with the vulnerable brain that really are having those big reactions. So this is not, um, you know, some people are have more willpower than others. It's some people have better brain chemistry than others. Interesting. My goodness, it's it's like um, so much. Uh, I, I'm sure we've just t- touched the tip of the iceberg here. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. when uh, have you, you know, been doing what you're doing and and creating these interventions? I'm, uh, I'm assuming that you've spoken to a lot of uh, medical doctors, like the allopathic doctors, etc. And what is their take on it that you've encountered? I mean, do they see the difference between someone who is overeating, just habitual, as opposed to having a, a brain chemistry imbalance creating the addiction? I mean, are they seeing that now? Because it's such a complex thing going on and it hasn't been historically easy to assess brain chemistry, we can do it with like say a blood test or a urine test, but that just takes a single snapshot picture of a moment in time. It doesn't tell us um, relative measures of things. It's only been recently that we have access to this kind of technology that has is non-intrusive. It's a it's an assessment that's answered by questions and about how you respond to things, and that tells us relative measures of brain chemistry. So we have a picture that we work with that we can actually assess and see. Not a lot of places can do that. Now some can get an idea of that. But what we found is that there's a a huge range, massive range of what people think needs to be done about it. And typically what happens, there's... um, there's more and more growing understanding of it. If you go on Google today, there's so much information about brains and brain chemistry and all those kinds of things. But when people walk into, say, a health food store, this will say, okay, this is the best brain product. And it is for a particular brain, mm. not for everybody's brain. And so if someone has a high dopamine and a low serotonin problem and they go and buy a product that has L-tyrosine in it, it's going to blow their brain up. They're going to feel really bad. But if they have a low dopamine problem, it's going to be great. They are going to go, wow, I I found the, the thing that works for me. So we talk about terms of functional medicine or orthomolecular medicine. And orthomolecular just means the right molecule for the right problem at the right time. And that's, it's so essential that people think about it in that way. A lot of health professionals, um, uh, non-traditional medical people, are looking at more and more that way. They're not saying, okay, this is the 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 box fix for everybody because there just isn't one. And the problems that occur from being addicted 
and eating in that way. Um, those are those are another whole set of problems that have to be dealt with once brain chemistry is sorted out. Mm-hmm. And those problems will be unique for people. Some people are under eating. Some people are overeating. Some people are destroying their relationships. Some people are um, overworking, so they're very successful, but they they don't have any other life. You know, there's so many things that have to be sorted out after that. So. When we, what we try and do is we encourage people to build a team. And as they become more present in their bodies and their brains become more stable and they get more clarity, they can help navigate and decide what is best for them. Because what happens is everybody, you know, including myself, we come from our particular viewpoint and we offer what we have. And some people try it on. And for some people, it works like it works great. But for somebody else, it's not working. And before we had access to brain chemistry um, assessment the way that we do now, we knew that brain chemistry was a problem and we included some of that in our treatment. But of course, it didn't work for everybody because we didn't understand the underlying differences that we couldn't see. And so it's so important for the person to try it on in their body and their being and get very clear about what their symptoms are. And we call things like, if I'm overeating, it's a symptom. If people feel ashamed about their eating, it's a symptom. If they feel um, upset about their body all the time, that is a symptom. And it's easier to see when you see somebody who's anorexic and very, you know, um, thin and when they feel upset about their body, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense. But when you see somebody who's overweight feeling upset about their body, it's like, well, of course they should. Mm-hmm. But the same symptom is a symptom of brain chemistry problems. So we train people to see their symptoms and tell their practitioners about them. Because part of the problem about getting help for this is nobody's really telling the people that are helping them what's really going on. Because we have felt ashamed. We have felt like it's our fault. Like if this person gives me this um, routine, maybe it's even taking herbs and things like that, and I can't follow it. Well, it's my problem. And that's not true. There's huge issues of compliance when you have brain chemistry problems. And so you, if you can't follow the regime, it's not going to work for you. Compliance is the number one thing. And one of the things we teach people is to find out what their performance perimeter is. And that just means those things that I can do reliably and consistently. And so we think we should be able to go to gym all the time or eat really well all the time. For people with a brain chemistry problem, those are so far outside their perimeter. <laughs> but I have to say, so going to the gym all the time, even people with not a brain chemistry exactly. imbalance has problems keeping that <laughs> regimen up. <laughs> so, exactly. You know, what do we expect? <laughs> And so it really, for practitioners and people alike, it's about finding out what what can we do to help that this person can actually execute. Mm-hmm. And typically we start with things like supplements because if we can get the right supplement uh, for the right problem, then we go along and they will start to feel a little bit better and their performance perimeter increases and they can do things that are a little different. And we do start with things like, can you eat one carrot? Because when you have really bad brain chemistry, sometimes you develop an aversion to vegetables. 
And so we see that as a symptom. This is not rebelliousness or just unhealthy eating. This is a symptom. And so we say, can you try one carrot? Because before they've had this horrible aversion, but when the brain chemistry gets back in, they don't know that they don't have it anymore. So we try to get them to eat one carrot and they're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. I don't know what the problem was before. Well, we know it was the brain chemistry. So we go along in little steps like that. And we encourage people to go to their, you know, naturopaths or homeopaths, their alternative doctors, their typical medical doctors, and tell them exactly what they're experiencing. Saying, you know, that regime you gave me, couldn't do it at all. What else are you going to do for me? You know, what I really have is this this irresistible urge to eat sugar. Can you help me with that? And there are many, many things that can help with that. And so lots of practitioners can say, well, you know, take saffron or take 5-HTP. And these things can help if that's the deficit that they're dealing with. You know, it may be a um, anxiety problem that calcium and magnesium will help with. And then the desire to, you know, soothe and feel better goes down. And so it really, you know, there's, there's a lot of confusion out there in people trying to help people lose weight. There's so much. And, you know, in, in, in traditional medical kinds of things, traditional dieting things and in alternative things, because these, these are complex things that are going on in people's brains and bodies. Right. Right. Um, so Nancy, uh, the first thing is uh, the technicians were asking if you could lean back just a little into your comfy yeah. position. <laughs> Thank you. I, when I start talking about this, I it's, lean forward. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's you're passionate. That's uh, that's a sign of you know someone uh, who's so dedicated and passionate about it. So it's wonderful. <laughs> um, hmm. uh, a question did come in. You know, uh, how do you help guide someone through recovery? Are there mm-hmm. key foods to support this person? Well, the the toughest thing to shift from are those hyperpalatable foods. Hyperpalatable foods are things that are highly refined, sugar, salt, fat. And so those things are going to be problematic. And especially if brain chemistry is really bad, the best thing that people can do here are start to introduce foods that will help. And foods that will help are things like whole grain carbohydrates. Like um, I have a client who takes brown rice like medicine because it helps to stabilize the body, it helps to clear things out, and it helps to give that um, give our bodies time to build things like good serotonin. Mm. So uh, steering, just starting to introduce things like that slowly, and I can't emphasize the slowly part enough because often there is such a need for soothing and a lot of like raw vegetables, brown rice, that may not provide the soothing. And so we really work on like what kinds of foods are a little bit healthier for you and can provide some of that soothing. Mm-hmm. Start to work in that way. And then we really, you know, encourage people to look into the brain chemistry issues and find out what kinds of things are going on. Because when you can get support for that, the work changing eating, um, changing thinking goes much, much faster. Mm. The other thing that we really talk to people about, when you're in that end stage of addictive eating, when you see food, you get triggered. When you hear about food, you get triggered. And so if you are with somebody, if you're a partner to somebody or a parent to someone, 
who has these kinds of issues, physically not having that stuff in the house is really useful. Don't be the pusher that brings it in because sometimes there, there'll be a time when it's like, I don't see it, so I don't have to eat at that moment. But if I see it, it can trigger the need to eat, but it also can trigger obsessive thought about it that I can't let go of. So I may not eat that food because I'm trying to be good, but I'll overeat other foods. So literally not bringing those highly palatable big trigger foods in physical view, it really does make a difference. And that's one of the things we tell people to start with, you know, throw it out if you can, put it out of sight if you can, just get yourself a little bit of space from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you go through uh, some examples of what you consider highly palatable foods? Yes. A hyperpalatable food, often they are, most restaurants are serving hyperpalatable foods now. Um, most drive-throughs are sell, serving hyperpalatable foods. They Things like french fries, they're shipped to the fast food place. They've already been deep fried and they're deep fried again and they have sugar and salt on them. And so those kind of loaded things, they actually go into your brain and flip little epigenetic tags that tell your hormones bad messages. Mm. And literally, it they're often even things like they have created these blueberry muffins that don't actually have any blueberries in them, but they oh, taste no. like they do. And that the chemical formula... They, when they sell the formula to the manufacturer, they say this will be guaranteed that people will not forget these muffins. And they, they really do. They go, wow, that, that, that's what my brain writes down about. I'm not going to forget that. And that's that hyperpalatable response. And so typically we tell people if it, if it, you go along, you get this wee response from it, it's probably a hyperpalatable food. With foods that we really like, we go, oh, that's so good, great. Mm. But we don't want to keep eating them endlessly. Hyperpalatable foods, we do. We, we don't want to stop eating them ever. We just, we want more of them and more of them. And we might sort of top out and get sick of them. But typically, we're thinking about having them again next week. Or when we're stressed, we're thinking about having them. Or when we're celebrating. Now, people don't understand this. They, either range of the emotions, um, it's we, we want to have that food. Mm-hmm. And so those hyperpalatable foods can be as innocuous as a granola bar. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I test it. You know, I give my kid the granola bar and he goes, wow, we don't buy those ones again. <laughs> <laughs> but when they say, yuck, we'll buy them again. <laughs> oh, dear. There is a difference. People go, oh, I like that. I, I'll get those ones again. That's really different than this. <gasps> and, you know, when I, I talk to people... The, there is a definition in something called the DSM. It's what psychologists and doctors use to define, diagnose illnesses. And there's a, a set of guidelines for addiction. And so when when people are eating a particular food and they they just crave more and more of it and they can't stop thinking about it and they feel sort of guilty about it and they maybe even sort of feel sneaky about it. Mm. You know, I, I ordered it in a restaurant and somebody wants a bite of it and I really, really like don't want to share. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can be, that's a, that's a hint that that food might be addictive for you. Okay. It doesn't mean it's addictive for everybody, mm. 
And every, people have different things. There's lots of difference. People talk about salt, sugar, and preferences in that way. And those can even change over the career of an eating issue. But pay attention in your body what gives you that big and captures your mind. Because mm. that's the thing that's going to be the problem food for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what What's interesting is... Um, uh, I mean, I have to say for myself, uh, growing up, and uh, as you say, you know, it was the soda pops and the potato chips and, and you yeah. know, coming from, you know, a cultural back background of, you know, the Asian uh, culture, you know, you give ca uh, candy to kids because it's to sweeten their life, okay? It's like during Lunar New Year, everyone's giving out candy because it's the sweetness in life, bringing in the sweetness of life. So it's a representation. And of course, you know, when the old older folks see kids, they want to give them candy to make them happy and things like that. And then I did notice, though, you know, um, uh, my eating habits, bef uh, you know, growing up would be like a pint of Haagen-Dazs every night and things like that, even though I was very slim, always. So I was very fortunate, high metabolism, et cetera, et cetera. And though when I began to actually shift the way I was eating, like in total consciousness, actually making a choice to eat more greens, to eat, you know, less refined sugars and et cetera. Now, when I do eat something like a hamburger at a fast food restaurant or French fries, I can hardly eat the whole thing. My body already just goes, uh-uh, don't like it, not there, you know, and even drinking soda, it's like, it's got to be pretty watered down for me to even <laughs> take it. You know, it's it's almost like the body already, it has been trained to a different path and it just rejects and begins to reject the, uh, those, um, what do you call it? The high, high, hyper palatable foods. Have you heard of that happening? Yes, that, that is the, the more normal response is mm -hmm. that, you know, this is a little too much. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, a, that's indicative of that good brain chemistry. And so we might go through a period of time, you know, like college students where they, you know, are eating really bad through school, things like that. But most people pull out of that. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is the chemistry problem when it gets hooked in someone that causes them to be a chronic eater, you know, having those problems. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Oh my goodness. Uh, so, so the difference would be, uh, people who are dealing with food addiction, there is really, really no escape for them uh, unless it's, it's set forth and, and they're coached through it basically to find the balance in what, what chemistry they're actually needing to create that balance. Is that right? Yes. Often, well, and the, the, the self-help programs, the 12-step programs, are really, really useful because they su pro provide support to move through some of these things. And often, you know, people literally, and that's, you know, it was that kind of support that got me through the first 20 years 
of losing 150 pounds and those things before I found the brain chemistry. Now, I had to work really hard, and I struggled with depression and all of those things. Um, when I when I got the brain chemistry sorted out, it was like, wow, this is how everybody else lives. But during that time, it was possible because I had lots of support, and I, I slowly moved away from those foods that harmed me so badly. Mm. And slowly started introducing other foods. So it is possible to do that way. Now, it's not possible for everybody. Um, we certainly see clients in our clinic, because we are sort of the, the last stage when people have tried everything else and they're not able to execute much in the way of behavior that's useful for them. But they, so there, there are some people that their brain chemistry is just too bad. They're never going to recover that way. And yeah, they, they need to find some support for that. And there, then there are others that will put together different means. I, I believe heavily in praying and I actually, um, was, was guided towards the very supplements that could help me 10 years before I found, before the technology and the information about brain chemistry was available. And it was through prayer. And I was praying about, okay, what do I do next? How do I get more well? And through an interesting series of events and my spiritual practice, which is if it presents four times, I pay attention, it brought to me um, five HDP, which was what I really needed the most. And so I, I had it, but I didn't know. Um, I was taking it and I was feeling better and better and it was like amazing. And my life was going along well, but I didn't know that that supplement was doing the big trick to it. I didn't understand that. And so when I got pregnant, I stopped everything including the 5-HTP, and that started a period of time where I got more and more um, unwell, mm. um, right to 2009 where I was praying again, and I, I literally got delivered to this man um, in the States at an international eating disorders conference that had the information about brain chemistry, and I assessed my brain, and guess what came back? The same 5-HTP I'd taken a decade before. Mm. But they didn't know it. So I, I tell people to pray about this too. You know, you'll, you'll get to the places and people that can help you. Now, there's a little difficulty with that because there's something called the God circuit. And that really is when people's brain chemistry is too far out, they, it's a struggle to connect with their source. Mm. And, yeah, and so that that can impair it, impair, impair their ability. So if they're in a community that is spiritually oriented, that can support them even when they're struggling with their own spiritual life, to the point where they can, you know, start getting a healthier brain. Truly, when we kept people's brains um, sorted out, often they have spontaneous return to spiritual thought and practice. Yeah. So. There's lots of ways to get in and heal this. Um, you know, we believe heavily in brain chemistry because it, it makes everything else so much easier. It literally is when, when you have bad brain chemistry, you don't have willpower. You, you don't have anything. When you start to restore brain chemistry, you can, again, begin to think through problems and decide what to do and are able to execute that behavior. So it, it really is this process of moving towards that. Mm. Um, what about things like, uh, I mean, I hear you about, you know, um, 
prayer and uh, there are so many out there that also is so adverse to religion, so to say. Yes. There's such a difference yeah. between religion and spirituality, you know? <laughs> this, yes. is, this is something that we continuously try to create awareness about, you know, it's like um, even to set in the aff- the daily affirmations, you know, I, I feel is also very important and very, um, it helps an individual to just create that flow of, of consciousness. When we work with people, that's one of the things that often gets um, tangled up in modern life, in brain chemistry problems, and we help them untangle that. And because everyone has to have some sort of concept of how the universe works to navigate their lives well. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we live in lots of reactivity. And we, we help them go through. Some people, you know, were, were helping them return to the church of their childhood. And some people were helping them move into things that are, are better suited for them today. And so there, there is no single answer. But when, we, when people start to feel better in their bodies they start to open up to that. You know, in 12-step programs, there's this idea of, you know, you have to find something bigger than you to help. And we really believe that that connection, restoring connection, that's that's how people live best. And that's how we find what is healthiest for us. And that's how we decide if that supplement or this supplement or that, you know, course of therapy or this is best for me by that deep connection and whether people feel that's inside their bodies or beyond themselves you know we don't quibble we just want them reconnected so that they can live in this evolving way because we are evolving beings we want to be well we want to expand and once we can restore brain chemistry they can start to do those kinds of things and so that's one of the things we push hard for because when you see pictures of a monk's brain, it is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. <laughs> and so that's a, that's part of just good brain health. That's all that meditation. <laughs> that stillness. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Less stress. Absolutely. <laughs> Where ours mm-hmm. is like completely tangled up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, uh, what about... Um, uh, looking into things like uh, hypnotherapy for support. Yeah, actually, we, 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 we weave that into our process because when somebody's brain is really far gone, they cannot manage their, you know, like to meditate is way beyond their performance perimeter. They can't do it. And so those kinds of things are really useful. Now, if you don't address the underlying brain chemistry, there's a limit to those things. And so people will go to hypnotherapy for weight loss or quitting smoking, other addictions. And for some people, it clicks in and it works. And it's like, wow. But then there's this other group of people it's not working for. And they see it as their problem. And it's like, no, your brain is just so unbalanced that it can't, there's no place for it to land. Mm. And it's problematic. Now, even when we do work with brain chemistry, when you have a brain chemistry problem, your perceptions are distorted. There's, you know, you might be more suspicious of people. You might be unrealistic. Your expectations may be way out of line. 
whatever it is, your perceptions are distorted. And so when your brain chemistry comes back and gets balanced, you still have this history of distorted perceptions that your brain and your body have stored as truth. And so you need to rework those things and sort out um, what was just symptomatic stuff and what, what is what reality you want to live in. And so hypnotherapy can really be helpful with um, sorting out that old cognitive clutter mm. and setting up um, good sensory regulation. Um, when, when you don't have good serotonin, your sensory regulation is horrible. You know, it can be, you know, the slightest noise bothers you or, you know, you have to have everything just right or you're not comfortable. And there's just such bad sensory experience. And that, that's why people call it emotional eating because your emotions and your sensory experience is so bad. It just feels so bad. You have to soothe. And so that sensory regulation that we're talking about it can be helped through hypnotherapy as well. It can help you calm your body down and wire that in as the predominant state mm. where it's been an unsettled state has been, you know, how your brain has been for years sometimes. Mm. You made a, a very interesting comment earlier about, you know, you're sort of like the last stop. Um, and I, I w- I'm assuming is because, you know, people have gone through the medical route, they've gone through the diet route and, uh, yes. because people only know as much as, you know, we're only aware of what's in, put in front of us, you know, as, as time goes on. Yes. Um, of course, you know, the hope would be they would find you at the same time as they're working together with their doctors. Isn't that correct? I really encourage people to keep working with doctors and um, you know, the people they've been working with. And we want them to educate their doctors. And because a lot of the time, you know, in in Canada right now, the the way that it goes is you give you give your client, if you're a doctor, you give them a um, meal plan. And if they can't follow it, then you give them medication to help them follow it. And if they still can't follow it, they may be recommended for some kind of surgery. And so this wow. is... This, Wait a this minute, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're going to be medicated to follow a meal plan? What they, what they see is, you know, when people are really depressed or really, really anxious, they can't follow a good health practice. And so there is an idea that we will help you with these, these interventions, appetite suppressants, antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs, so that you're more able to um, take care of your health. Mm. And so that's problematic in itself. And when we can work with doctors, and we have found when we explain what's going on and we, you know, talk to people, most of the time, because we deal with, um, <laughs> what we call train wreck cases a lot of the time, um, the doctors are more than willing to work with us because they don't have any answers. And so we're, we're trying different things. And um, often people come to us on lots of psychiatric medications, which typically um, mess up your, your appetite uh, regulation as well. And we work with them to back down the medications, get just enough so that we can do some other kinds of interventions. And all of, because everything that, Everything you do all day, 
all night, 24-7, affects your brain chemistry. And so there are so many interventions you can use, but you have to be able to have some ability to execute. And so we train people and doctors and health people to work with that. And so we might have a an herbalist helping with working with anxiety, or we might have a medical doctor um, working with what metabolic syndrome problems. And so we it is very integrated because a lot of the time we need that kind of bigger support group, but we also need to be the team leader. So if somebody says, you know, here, why don't you have these medications because you seem upset? Um, you know, we really want to check with the rest of the people on the team and see what they're saying and see what we feel ourselves. Is that useful? And if it is, we might try it out for a while. And when we work with people, we, tr- we work to teach them to be so in touch with their bodies, good, bad, or indifferent. Unfortunately, when you have bad brain chemistry, when you have a food addiction going on, you don't want to be in touch with your body. It's the last thing you want. But when you can get in there, then you can give good information to the people that are helping you. And so if you can say to them, you know, by four o'clock, I would, you know, I'm going to eat the arm off the chair. This is a problem. And then the, the person can see what's going on. And we've seen huge changes in the way that people are talking about food addiction just because of that, just because people have been honest and able and willing to tell professionals what's going on. So that's it is a very integrative thing that needs to happen because there's lots going on for people when this is happening. And so we encourage people to keep that team. To You need a team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, you, you had mentioned uh, to me as well when, when we were having our chat um, a few days ago that uh, when you begin to work with an individual, quite often you also lead into working with the rest of the family. Yes, as you were saying earlier, often there's a family problem and it's displayed differently, but there are problems with brain chemistry. And then, so older parents have got the same problem and it's typically getting quite bad by uh, the time you get older if it's not treated. So it's, they're developing all sorts of issues as well as food issues generally. And um, when we see it with younger children, we are seeing there's um, a sort of a, a a symptom profile and it will typically have there'll be some learning issues with school and they may be excessive uh, perfectionism or it may be trouble even understanding math so the the range is really wide but there's some problem at school there's social problems of some kind there are problems with rank sensory regulation they might have been diagnosed as sensory problems already they they may have explosive tempers. Often when we see at, at teenagerhood, we see a lot of our clients' children coming in because there's explosive situations at home. And that is, it's just escalating and nobody can get good sensory regulation. And so things are escalating out of control. And when we can intervene there, it's like, it's a dream job because we can intervene before these problems develop into hardcore eating disorders or other addictions. And we we usually have a good idea what the brain problems might be already because we've been seeing the parent. And so we get to intervene earlier with the, with the next generation. Mm. 
which that's wonderful. That I'm sure that is uh, the parents are very, very open to having you help in that level. <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh my goodness, um, Nancy, we've come to the top of our hour. Is there uh, some something you'd like to leave with our audience? Uh, for example, um, some thoughts uh, to look out for if uh, some things that they could ask themselves if they may be under uh, this sort of chemical imbalance um, or if they know of someone that might also have these issues? Well, we always, we talk heavily about that feeling of being out of control and that leads to the shame and the secretiveness, the hiding. And so if people are experiencing those things, if they feel like, wow, you know, I, I didn't mean to eat that much or I can't stop thinking about that, that out of control feeling, there, there's probably something going on. If there is this feeling of shame, like, I, oh, I did that again. I ate those things again. Or I'm going to hide this so nobody sees that I'm eating this. Or that feeling of just obsessing about it all the time. Too much thought. So those kinds of things are really the hallmarks of a problem that's there. And it's to get some support before it becomes more and more chronic. Because typically, these things don't respond well to heavy-handed force. They actually, the more suppression is involved, the more it, it comes up. And the last thing that I'll say is just never, never, never give up. There is help out there. There are more people all the time talking about this. So if you run into someone who says, no, that's silly, just go and do this, they're not hearing you, they can't help you. Keep looking because there are people that will be able to understand your experience. Mm. Thank you so much. Nancy Anderson Dolan, for your expertise today. What a, an amazing journey that you've taken and now uh, your journey to help others through something that you've, you've dealt with for a very, very good part of your life. We're very honored to have you with us today, Nancy. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's wonderful that you're doing this kind of work that is bringing lots of new ideas to some old problems. Uh, yeah, so to some old problems that seem new to everyone, right? <laughs> Thank you so much, Nancy. And if uh, you have uh, have any, if you would like to look further look into this uh, addiction, food addiction or addictions themselves, we did do a episode on Magical Medical Tour, and I do believe it's episode number six, called Addiction Conniption with Dr. Joseph Farley. So we recommend you to um, have a look at that or go onto iTunes and, and be able to listen to it as a podcast. And so again, we'd like to thank Nancy Anderson Dolan for her time and her expertise in sharing with us um, on this very, very... Um, I, I do believe it's a, a issue that many people deal with. And of course, we'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us on this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can support you better. We invite you to join us live Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1.30 Eastern Time, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. 
I'd like to uh, remind you that you can contact Nancy Anderson Dolan at wiseheartwellnessworldwide.com. wiseheartwellnessworldwide.com. And of course, that link is also on our website. Thank you very much. And until next time, namaste. Namaste.